difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Today we're... Wait, what are we doing again? Don't you remember, Keith? Keith, are you okay? Do you need us to jog your memory? Memory. Okay, there it is. (laughs) This week we're talking about two science fiction films deeply interested in the question of memory and how it relates to our identity. Well, okay, deeply might be too strong a word, but both are somewhat concerned about memory and identity, even if they're always at least as concerned about keeping the action moving and explosions exploding. Genevieve, can you tell us more? Sure. Captain Marvel, the first movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to focus squarely on a female protagonist, stars Brie Larson as the eponymous Captain, a warrior from the noble Kree race, or so she believes. She's having a hard time remembering all the details of her past, and that issue gets even more complicated when she crash lands in 1995 Los Angeles. Her predicament reminded us a lot of another science fiction action hero, Douglas Quaid, the protagonist of Paul Verhoeven's 1990 film Total Recall, in which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays just an ordinary construction worker who dreams of someday going to Mars. But is it a dream? Spoiler, it actually, who knows? We'll get into that and other questions raised by Total Recall after the break. Quaid. Cut. Get ready for a surprise. We can't let him run around. He knows too much. They've got your bug. I get a lock. There! And the bug's in your skull. Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose. Don't worry, it's self-guiding. Got him. Welcome to Mars. You got a lot of nerve showing your face around here. Look who's talking. They erased her identity and implanted a new one. If I'm not me, who the hell am I? He's got a hologram! Welcome to Johnny Cab. Drive! Where can I take you tonight? Please fasten your seatbelt. I want Quaid delivered alive for reimplantation. That's for making me come to Mars. You wouldn't hurt me. After all, we're married. Consider that a divorce. We hope you enjoyed the ride. He awoke and wanted Mars. The valleys, he thought. What would we like to trudge among them? Great and greater yet, the dream grew as he became fully conscious. The dream and the yearning. He could almost feel the enveloping presence of another world. So opens Philip K. Dick's 1966 short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, one of the most famous efforts from the prolific and much-adapted science fiction writer. The story of a man who contracts an agency to implant false memories of Mars, only to uncover real memories he didn't know he had, Dick's version begins similarly to the Paul Verhoeven-directed Total Recall, then diverges significantly. But both the source material and the film it inspired stay true to a theme that runs throughout Dick's work. If our only way to determine reality is our minds, and our minds can't be trusted, how do we define what's real? For Douglas Quaid, that question takes on special urgency after he visits Recall, an organization he turns to to give him memories of the trip to Mars his wife Lori, played by Sharon Stone, will never let him take. Suddenly, he remembers he's a special agent. A buddy at work is trying to kill him. He encounters a recording of himself instructing him how to remove a bug that's been implanted in his brain. And he's taking off from Mars in a desperate attempt to save his life and the lives of the rebels fighting for control of the planet. 
unless, as a visitor to the fancy Mars Hotel in which he's staying tells him, he's still unconscious back at recall, and all this is an implanted memory gone wrong. Total Recall was many years in the making and could have taken a much different form. Writer Ronald Shusett acquired the option to Dick's story in 1974 before anyone thought much of turning his stories into movies. He co-wrote a script with Dan O'Bannon, with whom he'd also write Alien, and from that script, many drafts would flower, including a version that might have been directed by David Cronenberg and a Patrick Swayze-starring Bruce Beresford-helmed version that was this close to happening before producer Dino De Laurentiis ran out of money. That opened the door for Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who'd already formed a mutual admiration society based on Schwarzenegger's fondness for Robocop, and presumably Verhoeven's recognition that Schwarzenegger could be a valuable tool in his quest to create as many subversive blockbusters as he could while in Hollywood. Total Recall advanced that goal. Like Robocop, it's in love with extremes, graphic violence, unnerving imagery, and bigger-than-life heroes. Schwarzenegger doesn't even need a robot suit to look like he's a comic book character. Here, Verhoeven throws in hints of the graphic sexuality that would define his next film, Basic Instinct, and with it, some of the misogyny that film either celebrates or undermines, depending on how you look at it. And like Robocop, Total Recall also satisfies all the needs of a blockbuster audience, particularly of the late 80s, early 90s era, when an R-rated action film could still be a box office success. But it unsettles while it satisfies. Just as every version of reality seems a little unreal to Quaid, something about the film always feels off, starting with the protagonist. Any film that asks us to buy Arnold Schwarzenegger as an ordinary guy is asking a lot, and both Total Recall and its star know this and play it as yet another reality-warping element. Schwarzenegger seems more out of place as a working Joe than as a secret agent. But is he? That's the big question looming over the film. Which is real, Quaid or Hauser, the identity in which he operates as an interplanetary man of mystery? Who is the real love of his life, Laurie or Melina, the woman he believes he left behind on Mars? And where does he belong, on the red sands of Mars or in the low-key dystopia of 2084 Earth? Which is the dream and who is the dreamer? Can we know? Does it even matter? We'll talk it over after the break. Alright guys, I saw this movie as an excited 17-year-old who kind of <laughs> fallen in love with Robocop and wanted more, and it had me every step of the way with twists I did not see coming. What was each of your experiences? Uh, Scott, I, I'm going to look at you first. Cause I think you saw this at the time too, right? I did. I did. I mean, I, I was fully on board with Total Recall, I, I believe. I, I don't know that I bought then or even now that it was as substantive an effort as RoboCop was. It tilts more toward being an entertaining action vehicle for Schwarzenegger with some braininess than RoboCop, which felt like so much a strong social and political statement on top of being an action film. Mm -hmm. So there's a little difference between the two movies, but I think it's, it's still then and now immensely satisfying. I think it still looks great. It holds up. I think a lot of Verhoeven's values as a filmmaker and as a thinker and as a political person come through in the context of a blockbuster, which is something we so desperately need now and don't get that often. So uh, I had a good time. 
or revisiting it. And you had not seen it before at all. No, right? I, I saw this movie for the first time as a tired 35 year old. So <laughs> <laughs> my uh, reaction to it was perhaps a little more muted than yours was the first time you saw it, Keith. But yeah, I still don't really know what to think of this film. And uh, Scott, you kind of put your finger on what I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around, which is the Verhovenness of it. Because like the I, like I, I do like Paul Verhoeven's work for it. Like I like Robocop and I really like Starship Troopers. And so I was expecting a little more overt satire commentary, whatever you want to call it, than this movie delivered. And watching it, I felt a lot more like it was like I was watching a sort of straight ahead action movie and like I think maybe just on my first trip through I was so captivated by the look of this and the effects of it and the weird Arnold Schwarzenegger performance in the middle of it that Mm. I was having trouble picking up on those elements in the story that were kind of subversive or satirizing action movies of, of this vein it felt a lot more sincere than I expected a a Paul Verhoeven movie to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, in reading about the film since then, I gather that other people maybe do see those things in there a little more than I did. So maybe it just is something that comes out on multiple viewings a little more. It was a fun film to watch. It was a fun film to look at. I don't know if if I can quite say that I I liked it. Um, And I kind of have a lot of trouble with Arnold Schwarzenegger as the center of a film most of the time. Like he rarely works for me um, with apologies to Matt Singer and uh, anyone else who... It's got to be a pretty big apology to Matt Singer. (laughs) But, you know, we we all have our things. Mm -hmm. His thing is Arnold Schwarzenegger and my thing is not Schwarzenegger. (laughs) So uh, when I I told a couple people we were doing this film for the podcast and... Both of them were very enthusiastic about the idea of revisiting this film. And both of them immediately said, I don't know if you're going to like it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were they were mostly right, but uh, not maybe not for the reasons they thought, uh, which were, is the violence, you know, and I'm kind of known for being a little violence averse. Uh, yeah. But the the type of violence in this movie that is so stylized, so heightened. Gruesome. Yeah, but also kind of beautiful to look at in a way just in terms of how it is done in the film like i i feel like i want to watch a two-hour making of this film more than i want to watch this film again (laughs) it's like rob botten again yeah just the effects of this film the gross out the violence is so effective and and really just as extreme as could possibly be in any moment you know it's just like oh well this this is a large pole maybe they we just like stick that through somebody's head uh there's like lots of moments like that in the movie yeah i I think a lot of that and and i I agree with this isn't robocop it's not all the way as tuned into the satire as it can be but i think he's really interested in uh, how to take the violence of of such movies at the time and make it both kind of you know, horribly beautiful as, as you're pointing out and, and compelling, but also kind of like, do I really want to watch this? I mean, do I really want to see this? And, and also like moments of having the hero and it's tempered a little bit in the moment, but having the hero use someone's body as a human. Yeah. That escalator sequence is incredible, it, right? It is incredible. And like one way you can always tell a hero from a villain in a movie is in a crowd scene, the villain just push people out of the way and the hero say, excuse me. And that's just not the case here, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I, it's just to me that like kind of mentioned above, but like there's just something a little bit off about every moment in this movie. You know, we'll get into the question of, of what's real and what's not, but even the fact that all the scenes on Mars, Mars 
kind of look like elaborate movie sets. To me, I think that even that kind of feeds into the, is this really happening or not uh, tone of the movie? I mean, I, I've, I find all that stuff, I mean, the more you think about it, I think the more you can find the thought that's put into it. I think it also falls in a really interesting place in Schwarzenegger's career when he's just starting to play with his image some. You know, I, he's been the straightforward action star for a, for a long time and had, had huge success doing it. But this is his first action movie he's made after Twins. And it almost seems like he's trying to meet those two instincts halfway And here. it came out the same year as Kindergarten Cop. Same year as which, uh, which was the 1990 Arnold Schwarzenegger film of my youth. <laughs> <laughs> is is it no, no it's not a tumor it is a tumor yeah, yeah right. it's, not a tumor. Uh, it's not a tumor uh, but having him play an ordinary guy it's just it just doesn't register as, as right you know it, it mm-hmm. registers as, as either comic or satirical or just kind of unreal i think with schwarzenegger it really the casting ends up being something you just have to accept uh, <laughs> in, in the sense that he's going to be arnold schwarzenegger if you put him in the context of a terminator movie his robotic nature makes a lot of sense and there's a kind of a charisma there but if you do place him in a role like this as a you know wor- working class guy that it doesn't quite work well, I mean, well, fortunately, and, and fortunately the film has a built-in mechanism to say hey this is actually not right who he could be he could be this other person a secret agent and maybe that maybe you're going to find him more persuasive in in maybe. that role but 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 what Schwarzenegger <laughs> is just a presence and, and, and he's going to give you a good powerful physical presence and a certain kind of clunky charisma in these types of roles that kind of works but it's definitely not perfect it can't be perfect because he's not a perfect actor by well, yeah and it's also putting him in a semi-comedic role i mean like there are comedic beats in this movie that he is expected to carry off i'm thinking of the pretty terrible line about oh, wanting a divorce not a divorce <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um terrible come on that's a that's a i'm clapping i'm in the theater clapping at that moment yeah i, I mean <laughs> wait you really are yeah, okay. but, then, but then you feel but but again then i think you feel maybe you are it is played as as, as an applause moment but then you, if you're giving any thought to it, it's like did i really just clap at that i mean i, I mean that's part of me i feel like and this is even, you know, basic instinct is basically this writ large, but I, I feel like the hatred directed at Sharon Stone's character, I, I think there's a self-consciousness to it there. You're either watching someone's delusions of it doing this or watching a, as we always are with movies, watching some kind of fantasy and, and like part of your fantasy being able to, you know, have a very good reason to, to put a bullet through your wife's head is sort of an <laughs> ugly thing, to, ugly kind of mindset to be in. And it makes you think about that. That's that is true. Or though, you just though, cheer along like a yeah, like a, you know, whichever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's probably tr- true. I, I kind of wish I felt like I was you know being asked to interrogate <laughs> that moment more than I was. I but I think I don't know. I think if you step back from this movie, it asks you to think about you know really examine everything. I mean, I mean, I mean, the one thing I will say for the film that really came through for me in a big way this time was Venusville, for one, mm-hmm. uh, and just how much I felt for um, the people who populated that that area, including Dean Norris. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> which one's Dean? Who's Dean Norris? He was uh, one of the mutants. It was Dean uh, Norris? Oh, totally with the yeah the f- yeah. the face. Okay, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. with with the suggestive anatomy face. But but <laughs> but consider like you know, there's so much product placement and like ads and it just felt like this is like a vision of a corporate space that we're so used to seeing now much mm-hmm. more even more even than 1990 and then you add on to the fact that 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 it very much is a corporate space that is being controlled by 
Cohagen and his goons, and that the very air that, the, that these people are breathing that is you know subject to to be shut off without anyone caring. I mean, that's a pretty powerful message. I think that, that that's where the film really kind of got to me, both politically and and kind of emotionally, because I felt you felt like, boy, this is just kind of this group of of misfits who is who are just confined to this world where they're dependent on you know a malevolent corporate overseer including the little kid the little mutant kid yeah. how can you, how can your heart not go out to the little mutant kid you know yeah yeah, yeah I, I was also really fascinated with the mars dynamic but the look of it too like i mean i i do love venusville and I, you know what i i'll just say it i even like the three boobs i think oh, that, that, yeah no. you know I'm, I'm i'm not afraid to say it <laughs> it makes <laughs> you think yeah <laughs> it does it does um, but anyway, back to Mars, like the whole story of the resistance, rebellion, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of happening there. Like, it, it's really fascinating to me because of, you know, these these issues that you speak of, Scott, that it, that it brings up. It, the film doesn't give us enough of it for my liking because it keeps turning back to this this character, you know, and, and what he's what he's going through. And this resistance just, you know, has to do with his story that's happening. But it's just kind of an example of like so much of this movie, I'm more interested in the world than the story mm-hmm. that's being told. And again, I think that a lot of that is tied more to the character of Quaid and the performance than necessarily the the narrative. Mars just kind of epitomizes that feeling to me of wanting to know more about this thing that is relegated to the background. One thing I was thinking too, in terms of like the way it ties in with RoboCop and then Star Troopers later, is um, what you see on television mm-hmm. and, and screens. And what, so many screens, screens, but also also the fact that it's state controlled television mm-hmm. and that they're painting a picture that is completely inaccurate of of what right. reality is. Of, of that, they're painting the rebellion as tra- terrorists. Mm-hmm. They use the word terrorist in re- reference to the to uh, you know a, a people who be completely overmatched, and then they're minimizing. Uh, the amount of violence that's actually occurring in that situation. They're making it seem like there's less conflict and less unrest on Mars than, than there actually is. And I mean, and that is something that we see over and over in RoboCop and in especially Starship Troopers when the government literally controls the media and can kind of present these images as fact and that people accept them as fact. And I mean, we're, we, and of course, then that got me thinking about what's happening right now with Venezuela and mm-hmm. with you know the Trump administration claiming that aid trucks were were being destroyed by the Maduro government and and that being not the case so it's like this is all very dangerous stuff and it's stuff that that Verhoeven was always interested in and on top of while he was in the middle of making these huge Hollywood spectacles. Yeah, I mean, I did want to talk about the politics of this movie, and I think you may have unpacked it pretty thoroughly just (laughs) there. I'm not sure it really goes much deeper than a basic sympathy for the underclass and and a distrust of government propaganda, but I think that goes a long way. I mean, I, I think that it's part of what makes this film still work is those, you know, we do see echoes of that today and it is applicable to to many different situations like being behind the iron curtain or as you say right now. It also ties into individuals too and in, in their ability to be fully themselves in the world. I mean, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character doesn't know who, who he is and there's a company that implants memories that are not their actual memories but will seem that way and it's, it's just, you know, it, you are as a human individual person you are being uh controlled or manipulated by much more powerful forces than you have any control over you know yeah how, how would this is uh something i want to talk about is how, how do you see this fitting into other philip k dick adaptations unless i'm mistaken it's pretty much the first big one after blade runner 
And a bit of trivia, Minority Report was actually supposed to be a sequel to Total Recall originally. Oh. It was supposed to be set on Mars, and the um, mutant psychics were supposed to be the precogs of the Minority Report. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't. What do you think? I mean, I, I mean, do you feel like they got somewhat more respectful to the source as they went along? I mean, like, I mean, I guess they they really just had you know we're talking about Blade Runner and Total Recall. You're talking about stories that had to be expanded upon to, in mm-hmm. order to make movies. Um, well, they're also stories that have memory at their center in Minority Report, yeah, too. And it, well, I mean, Blade Runner is based on a, f- a full novel, but but it's also probably the one that diverges the most from the source material of those three adaptations. And you're right. I think thematically, they're all in varying degrees locked into what Dick was kind of trying to do, even if they don't necessarily uh, say that true to the actual stories themselves. I, th- I think... It's probably not a coincidence that Dick has been adapted more often now that special effects kind of caught up with the ability to, to bend reality a little bit more. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that you know, that works out pretty well here. Uh, we should talk about the effects a little. It comes from a very particular moment in special effects, but I also feel like it is kind of one of the high watermarks, I mean, of, of the practical effects because mm-hmm. we're, we're – a couple years out from Jurassic Park, and this is really like one of the last times we're going to see practical effects on this level, this often, this much makeup and this much mask work and things like that, uh, because CGI is coming in. And a few years after that, you would never make a movie with sets this elaborate. This is kind of like, not the last hurrah, because it takes a while for CGI to catch up with that. But by the time of Gladiator, at the end of the, of the, of the century, at the end of the decade here, you, know, you would not have to build this much. You could just mm-hmm. green screen it in. So uh, I, I think I'm, I'm an old fogey, and I feel like there is something that's lost. I'm not going to complain about the way things are done today, but, but it is refreshing to see something that is this thoroughly realize with really tangible objects. Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of already spoke about the appeal for me with that in, in terms of violence. Like I, I like it being kind of more stylized and heightened and the type of effects that are being used here facilitate that for sure. I also find it interesting to note that like there is some like very early CGI in this movie mm-hmm. and when you go back and look at a lot at films from this era that had early CGI most of the time it looks really bad but the way it's implemented here with the the x-ray you that's know and the it. skeleton it, yeah, that's it, good stuff. It, it it still looks really good to the, to the point that I spent a couple beats wondering like is this something that could have been done practically like is the you know what is this a practical effect and that's why it looks like of a piece with everything else it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb the way so much early CGI does when combined with practical effects. No, that that was the scene I was waiting to cite. Oh, I thought ha-ha. that was awesome. Beat you. <laughs> Beat me. Just like I thought that X-ray thing is such a cool idea. Just to, just to see people on their way to the, the train heading to this kind of safe zone where nobody can have weapons and then and then when he does enter with a weapon and he pauses and then and there, there's so much tension build up that was beautifully done and also uh, all done all done digitally you know you, you, get, a, you get a pretty big sample of that specific effect and it holds up great I, I don't think i don't think there's a whole lot of this movie that does not uh, hold up well effects wise you know a lot of it is delightful I, the johnny cab is i love the johnny wonderful cab. <laughs> I mean, that, that holds up great and robert, uh, voice of robert picardo too mars looks really interesting and uh, yeah he's a you know i mean verhoeven was always very talented and good at, at understanding how effects worked and how uh, you know he was always on the cutting edge i mean you look at robocop robocop looks incredible 
then and now. Starship Troopers looks incredible then and now. You know, I mean, Starship Troopers is full of like back screen stuff and then you know some CGI, I think, as well. And, oh, and, and a uh, lot of ba- a lot of CGI, a lot of CGI, a lot of back screen. But but I mean, all that is really beautifully in- incorporated and gives you a sense of of real physical threat. I mean, he's very good technical director on top of all the other perverted crap he does. Perverted crap that makes us love him. Yeah. Speaking of perverted crap, that's my segue. No, um, I don't want to like imply that I think that this effect is poorly done, but I'm not a huge fan of the woman's suit, his his, his grotesque woman mm. suit, and not because of the way it, it looks or the reveal, which the reveal is kind of cool, but just like, I don't understand it. Like, I don't understand how it glitches. I don't understand why he can't say any other words. There's something in the conception that I'm either missing or isn't there that that scene just like puzzled me. It feels and, like there's a much to be more like, just don't do this or else... You you're going to glitch out or something yeah. like that. But, but yeah, it's, it just made like, it just why, why a, can he only say one phrase? Well, just yeah. great. <laughs> I don't get it. Did <laughs> yeah, I miss something? I, no? I don't have okay, an answer okay, to that. Okay. I think it's just a kind of a bit of comic business with, with uh, some action punctuated at the end. And that's, that's what you get. I, I didn't, I never really thought about the, the, the uh, logic of it, but, uh, but probably there's probably a reason for that. Uh, so the million dollar question here is I want to get everyone's opinion mm-hmm. on whether or not, what happens in this film is real. Whether or not he actually is a secret agent, these are hidden memories, or he's still on the chair somewhere at recall. Uh, Genevieve, you're going to go first. <laughs> okay. uh, can I cheat and say what Verhoeven says? Oh, has he, has he, uh, does he have an opinion? Uh, he has. He has spoken out. But for, well, I, I will give my opinion of course, for, the, first. You know, just I, I, because, death, death of the author, we don't care. Yeah, but, you know. exactly. Personally, like I kind of find it hard to swallow that he really is Douglas Quaid just because that character makes no sense <laughs> like with Arnold Schwarzenegger playing him like the the idea that he's this average joe in this unhappy marriage with like the most beautiful woman in the world for unknown reasons and happens to be having these dreams that are just because, you know, not related to anything else. Like it, it doesn't track for me in a lot of ways. And also, we have so little sense of Quaid outside the scenario that he's in that I can't imagine his mind coming up with something of this level, you know, of of, of this being all a dream. But as for what Verhoeven says, basically either, it could be either. And he he says, (laughs) and I I wanted it to be that way because I felt that it was, if you want to use a very big word, postmodern. I felt that basically I should not say this is true and this is not true. I wanted, and we worked with Gary Goldman in that, not the original writers, very hard to make both consistent and that both would be true. So the answer, according to the director, is both. But I choose to say it is not a dream. And it is all just a ridiculous, over-the-top action uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's Carl Hauser. I mean, I think he's the agent. And I mean, the, the, the journey we go um, on in this film is that the life on earth uh, is douglas quaid the construction worker is the false one and that and that the whole film is a journey about him discovering who he actually is and and, and coming and returning to that to, to the life that he was meant to have with a person he was meant to be with and, get, and getting another chance to be a, a hero or a version of a hero because like hauser is a, a, a bad guy or you, you know like yeah. he, he's in cahoots with the with a Co- Co- yeah, Co- he's, he's in cahoots with Cohagen. <laughs> I, I love that uh, yeah. name. So if it's real, it's kind of like Hauser getting to press a reset on who he is and being yeah. a hero. And uh, you know, I just I like that. I, mean, right I, like the hap- I like the happy 
implications of all that. I feel like that's the journey we take. We and we kind of have the uh, sort of a happier conclusion at the at the end of all of that. Or yeah, I think uh, it wants to have. I I really think Verhoeven wanted it to be ambiguous. It could have been. I, I like this movie a lot. I think it could have been perhaps a more interesting movie if it had really fully committed to that ambiguity. I think just watching it, there are just too many scenes in which Quaid's not present at all. So yeah. it's, it's hard, you know, <laughs> it's hard to justify that from, from a uh, perspective of it being all an, an illusion uh, unless he's... Yeah, how, he's, how is he dreaming those conversations between Cohagen and Rector? <laughs> well, here, here's how I... If you really want to twist yourself in knots, you would Please do this. Do. You would say, say, it is a movie about movies in some ways and his mind is so filled with these fantasies of entertainment and being surrounded by screens that he needs to, to for to him to convince himself that uh, of this of this fantasy it has to look like a movie and so, mm-hmm. thus you know you also have these on uh, this underground world that kind of looks like a movie set as well you know um i think you have to twitch like i said you have yeah. to twitch yourself yeah, because do there, we but. get any sort of sense that quaid is is a movie buff or like even that he's like engages well, with entertainment is, a, lo- a lot the whole world is covered in screens so. yeah but I, I don't necessarily I'm not saying entertain- it's a great I'm, argument I'm just saying <laughs> it's an argument Genevieve um, I would also th- I, you, know, you could also cite the the what if it was all just a dream um, <laughs> and the fade to white at the end is, is a little strange uh, yeah but whatever, you know, I, I, I think those are more like strange little grace notes than the perfectly balanced uh, play of possibilities that, that Verhoeven's talking about. But uh, I think they kind of, they give a little pepper to the film. I, I, I like that at least it holds out the possibility that we're watching someone's mind uh, destroy itself rather than an actual, <laughs> just a, a, an action film. Yeah. And Verhoeven is always there convincing you that it's, the film is a lot smarter than you would expect such a thing to be. <laughs> Then Schwarzenegger is there making you suspect it might be dumber than you think. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, I, I'm going to be the Matt Singer standing where I, I think he's very, is, uh, someone who, at least at this phase in his career, was just very canny about how he appeared on screen, how he was used, and made some pretty smart choices. And just putting himself in the in the middle of this of this situation where he is kind of like starts out as sort of a neutered version of the Arnold Schwarzenegger hero and kind of, you know, I I don't want to extend that motor, metaphor any further, but kind of re- regains his fullness uh, throughout the, the over the course of the film. Uh, I, I think it's it's a, a smart choice, and I think it was a worked out well for him. And I think it's an interesting use of him and, uh, and a nice convergence of things. You know, actually one of the one of the big at one point, Verhoeven and Schwarzenegger were supposed to make a movie called The Crusades uh, mm. together, which I I, I regret. Never happened, but also probably would have been a movie who's so controversial we would still be talking about. <laughs> yeah. Trying to debate what it was all about anyway today. As, as, as well, in other words, a Paul Verhoeven film. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, what, what makes it different from every other Paul Verhoeven uh, film? That's true. Yeah, I guess it was a smart move on Schwarzenegger's part, obviously. It worked out well for the movie. I just feel like for the story that's being told, I feel like the story in this film would be so much better if you had someone in that role who actually read as an everyman and they could actually tease out this ambiguity of, is he just a normal guy or is he, a, I mean, you look at, you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're like, no, that obviously he is actually the suave secret agent who has all these, you know, this very special set of skills or whatever, you know, but like, briefly can we talk about like the other people who may have played this role you sure. know like oh. uh richard dreyfus was the or, like way back in one of like the very original <laughs> okay. you know that, that's your every man that would be your every <laughs> yeah, yeah or yeah. uh jeff bridges 
was, I guess, originally attached when Cronenberg was involved. Mm. He really wanted William Hurt in that role. That would have been good. Yeah. 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 So, like, uh, Schwarzenegger's presence makes this this a Schwarzenegger movie, and, like, for better or worse. For me, personally, it's maybe a little worse just because I can't help but think of what else it might have been in in the hands of a different uh, star, but that is not the movie we got, so. It could have been Patrick Swayze, too. Yeah. They they, they were building sets at at the time they shut it down, but... Would have had more dancing, hopefully. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to see Bruce Barrett's <laughs> action, action, no, action director extraordinaire. If, Bruce I, I, Bruce I'm going to just, you know, rather than gamble on those alternate realities, I think I'm going to stand pat on the one we have. Well, that should wrap it up for now. We're going to talk more about Total Recall in, in our next episode when we compare it to Captain Marvel. And for now, we'll be right back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Scott, what have you got for us? A listener named Ryan wrote in with an email that promised it would touch on too many things at once. And it did. (laughs) Or at least too many to feature here. But we wanted to share Ryan's thoughts on our pairing of A Bucket of Blood and Velvet Buzzsaw. Ryan writes, Hearing you all move from discussing Velvet Buzzsaw itself to talking about Netflix's model made me think of David Ehrlich's review where he called Velvet Buzz saw the, quote, platonic ideal of a Netflix movie. And I wondered if you all had any thoughts on the meta-commentary of this, a movie about the commodification of art that ends up as a piece of, or even the jumping-off point for conversations about the workings of film as a medium that's been almost entirely commodified. I doubt there was any conscious effort by Gilroy to work with Netflix in particular to force this meta-conversation, but I think it's an interesting one. It is interesting. <laughs> Good job, David Ehrlich. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Though, though, weirdly enough, I was thinking much more, and we talked about it on the last episode of of High Flying Bird being so much of a Netflix movie mm-hmm. because it's so much ab- about you know going around the studio, going around the, the gatekeepers, and kind of going and putting your stuff on this platform that's widely seen yet kind of semi independent in some weird way. But uh, but I think I think. I think there's a good argument here about Vel- Vel- well, Buzzsaw. And I think in that podcast, which I did not participate in, but edited, so definitely heard, uh, I think it was Keith, you speculated as to whether Netflix is sort of where B-movies are migrating to or, or will will continue to have a life, you know? And yeah. I, th- I think you all kind of poo-pooed that idea, but I, I was nodding along when, when, yeah. when I heard that. Thank you. Um, where were you when I needed you, Genevieve? <laughs> I, was, um, I was in Los Angeles, but, but just the idea that Netflix can play home to types of movies that theaters no longer can't, I think is something that maybe we don't, like to think about as 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 movie people who still really like to go to movies but i think the evidence suggests more and more that that might may be the case and it's not just you know sort of would be schlocky b movies but also the rom-com has had a, a big renaissance on netflix in recent years and you know these sort of low to mid-budget movies uh, or like super low budget indies a, a la high flying bird you know and they do find a, a home there, and I think more and more filmmakers are cognizant of it of that. And I don't think it's out of line to think that some filmmakers are beginning to incorporate that into their actual filmmaking, or the, at least the thinking behind it. 
Does that make you sad, Scott? <laughs> you look sad. <laughs> I'm okay. I, we, you know, I mean, I shouldn't gripe, I guess, all the time about it, but then we just did two episodes in a row of Netflix. Almost did a third film, one. So we <laughs> nearly did a third one. We were considering triple frontier. So, so yeah, uh, Netflix films, you know, both films that would have a hard time. I think it's struggle in theaters or struggle to get to get seen in theaters. Um, yeah. Although it's funny to me to talk about Velvet Buzzsaw now because it feels like it's already just yep in the vapor through, everything you know? everything feels that's the thing about that's the netflix effect though it just feels like after that initial weekend it's just it's just vaporized even though it's present on the system mm-hmm. it does it you know it's lack of a, a presence in a movie theater which you can drive to and pay money for and sit in a seat along with other people it's just it's a different feel i, I wonder if the netflix effect ha- is less to do with the initial release of a film and more with its ongoing life because you know having so much content on netflix and other streaming services has kind of gotten rid for a lot of people of the experience of finding a movie on television you know and what in yeah. you know keith you've spoken about this before about stumbling upon some random movie on on tv you know and also the experience of rewatching the same movies for for me like a lot of rom-coms that's kind of a big part of my movie going adolescence is watching the same you know watching Carrie Met Sally God knows how many times on TV you know mm-hmm. and now when there's just this depository of so many movies that you can pick and choose from at any point you lose that feeling and the connection that comes with it of you know either discovery or a certain maybe comfort of revisiting the same movie over and over again that I associate with watching movies on television oh that's interesting I mean I I mean, I was thinking more almost of what Sam Adams called the convenience trap back in the day of just like, mm-hmm. of because you're just on your couch and you don't have to fish out a DVD and, and you can just get on Netflix and kind of see what's about and uh, you, you make choices you would not have made otherwise. I mean, I, would, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think I would have given in time to watch Paddleton, <laughs> which <laughs> I did this week. I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine, but... Um, but, yeah, that was kind of me with Dumplin'. I guess Dumplin'. Yeah, Dumplin'. yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, you're not gonna. But you know, uh, you going out, you going out to a movie theater to see Dumplin'? Probably not. Oh, but, yeah. I'd, but I'd watch if I came across it on TV. Dumplin' was something I vaguely thought about watching once a few months ago, and and completely <laughs> forgotten existed. You had to strike while the Dumplin' iron was hot. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, another listener named Ryan. At least I think it's another listener. Wrote in inspired by a different episode. Genevieve, you want to take this one? Happily, uh, other Ryan writes, on your latest episode discussing white men can't jump, you read some feedback about bad movies and the negative impact they can have on our perception of other films in a director's filmography. Luke's letter made me think of the concept of a good-bad album coined by music critic Steve Hyden. Yay, Midwest. Yay, Midwest. A good-bad album is an album which on its face you might not like, but helps you realize what makes the records you love in an artist's discography so great. He's used Springsteen's Human Touch as an example. While there are movies that reveal their creators as frauds, I find it more interesting to think about good-bad films. Velvet Buzzsaw fits into the good-bad category for me. Nightcrawler seems even better knowing how it could have gone wrong. Another example is Isle of Dogs, a film which, despite my best efforts, I could not warm up to, but made me realize how special my favorite Wes Anderson films are, specifically Fantastic Mr. Fox. The Isle of Dogs Fantastic Mr. Fox one is, speaks to me personally here. That's a experience I, I definitely felt because I love Fantastic Mr. Fox and wanted Isle of Dogs to be more like that. And seeing Isle of Dogs only highlighted that for me. But um, I, I feel like uh, Ryan is maybe asking us for other examples here that I am struggling to come up with off the top of my head. I think it's easier with music in a way. Yeah. I, I can immediately 
talk about why I don't know. It's not, it's not even the right thing. But like, I, I love the Bob Dylan album Desire, even though I think it's objectively has some of his very worst songs on it. Uh, but and yet I listen to it all the way through every time because it just kind of gives you the, everything Dylan was doing at that point. But but in movie wise, I don't know. I'm, I'm I, I, I want to like I think Altman had a lot of those moments. Yeah, I mean, you look at a film like Predaporte or something where it, like that. It's like or, everything that he does well. But it doesn't work, you yeah. know. So I actually, I, I, a, a really I almost with example. him. It was all you'd see other other people trying to do Altman, and then you'd say, "Oh yeah, you know, Predaporte wasn't so bad," or or like Altman just had a way of doing things that had a kind of a special kind of magic that other filmmakers couldn't replicate. But I don't know. I'd be thinking about. I'm just off the top of my head. I mean, a movie like Hitchcock's Marnie is not sure uh, not a perfect film, but it does um, give you an appreciation for what he was going for at that time in his career and, and how ambitious it was and, and you know the sort of Freudian themes that he was exploring that maybe got explored more effectively in other films of that era. But uh, I, I like this idea, though. I do like the idea of a misfire having kind of a clarifying effect. Bonfire of the Vanities. I mean, it's still got some amazing oh De Palma God. stuff in it, yeah. but, it's, but it just doesn't work. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was one of those famous, I think it was... Pauline Kale was saying that that you know only a great director could make a film that bad. Or I'm butchering what she just said. What she said, but you know what I'm saying. Like there's, you, you kind of almost know that you're know, the presence of a great filmmaker when you when you witness a fiasco of that magnitude. Is there a Scorsese that would do that for you? No, I, I mean the worst Scorsese to me is is that Rolling Stones uh, Shining Light is Shining Light. I mean that's just bad because it's it's not even bad. It's just it's just not vital in any real way mm-hmm. it feels very uh canned and in, 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 in a way that scorsese films never are but scorsese i think is pretty solid all the way all the way through top, Gen- top to bottom um i'm thinking of some of like the cohen brothers lesser lesser mm. work something like you know lady killers mm. which I, I haven't seen in years and i don't know maybe i would like it like it more now. i rewatched it recently yeah. it's uh, was, was it a clarifying experience it was, it was <laughs> i remember liking it okay at the time and liking it a lot less this time <laughs> uh, but yes i think that's, yeah. that's actually a pretty good example yeah. of what he's talking about right yeah like they they are filmmakers who you know even when they're doing their thing not particularly well it's still very clearly their thing and you can see it kind of tentacling out uh, in better pieces of their filmography i think definitely i like this concept though i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna think about it some more you know, perhaps maybe, you know if anyone out there is listening and wants to uh, have their own examples right in and we can keep this conversation going totally all right finally we want to direct everyone to our facebook page well just in general because it's great but uh, <laughs> we shared a work of a listener named enrico who created a kind of alternate universe timeline of possible pairings we could have done it's really good and you know we probably should have done some of those <laughs> while we're at it we should we went back and forth with a few other movies this week so in an alternate universe we could, we could have done uh captain marvel and and the hidden which is a, a great 80s cult science fiction film about someone who's searching for an alien who can shapeshift in LA. And what was the other one? We, we, we came Spellbound. Close, yeah, close to Spellbound. They were really close the, to Spellbound. The but that, that, that one came down to it not being very yeah, available at, at all. It's only, you know, a great film by one of the greatest directors yeah. ever. Why why should it be conveniently <laughs> available anywhere? But what was the other one, Scott? And compared to Captain... Yeah, Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel. Yeah, Born Identity. A, a, right. a, a listener wrote in with Born Identity. Born Identity would have been a good one. It, it would have been good. We idea. almost did a we almost did a last minute switch switch to that, but yeah, uh, you know we might get around to the Borns one of these days. Yeah, 
Well, we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, write in and we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll turn back the clock to 1995 when the songs of Garbage and No Doubt blared from Geo Prisms. Samuel L. Jackson looked appreciably younger and the struggle between the Cree and the Skrulls came to earth. Look for that next Tuesday or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be checking into the Mars Hilton and surreptitiously making our way to Venusville.